Back in December, uh, a whole group of, of guys, maybe 20 or 30 of us, uh, nerded out and went to watch uh, Star, Fo- Star Wars, The Force Awakens, the new one when it came out. So we met at Buffalo Wild Wings and we went over and, and watched the movie together. And if you haven't seen it, I don't think this is going to be a spoiler, this is on the previews, but there's a scene where like the new kind of characters, uh, Ray and Finn, have met up with Han Solo and Chewbacca, and um, they're talking about Jedis and the Force and all this stuff, and Han Solo looks at him and says, it's true, all of it. And in a nutshell, that's what Luke is trying to get us to see when he writes this book, that it's true, all of it. That's that's the, the central message. And so he's set out to write an orderly account, verse 3, so that we might have certainty, verse 4, of the things of Christ. And so this book that we're going to be wading into, it's probably going to be the longest series we've ever done here uh, in terms of sermons. It's probably going to take us 75 or 80. We'll break it up and so it doesn't get redundant, but it's going to take us a, a while to make our way through this. Uh, but it very much is just kind of a who, what, when, where, how, and why of Jesus. And so it really zeroes in on who is Jesus? Uh, what did Jesus come to do? What does he want people to do in response to that? And so it's going to zero in and we're going to be focusing in on the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, week in and week out. And so if you're in here this morning and you've got questions about all this Jesus stuff, maybe even some doubts, maybe some skepticism about all of it. Uh, Maybe you're a believer, but there's still some doubts. This is a good place to be. This series is a good place to be. Because you are who Luke was writing to. I mean, he writes it to a guy named Theophilus, and we'll get into who that is a little bit more. But but he, uh, in a nutshell, was either a brand new convert who was just coming, you know, just beginning uh, his walk with Christ, or he's a skeptic who's intrigued by Christianity and is starting to explore a little bit. And so Luke writes him this account, an orderly account, to give him certainty about the things that he's being taught. And so that's the, the big picture theme of the book. But this morning... We've just got to get into it. We've just got to get started. And so we need to do some preliminary work that's that's foundational, but sets us up to understand where we're going with this series, because context is king. If we don't know some of the context of what's going on, a lot of what we get into in the weeks ahead aren't going to make sense. So we just need to get into it. And and it's called the, the gospel according to Luke. But how do we know that? Like, how do we know Luke wrote this? He never claims it, never says his name in this, entire, uh, in, this, in this entire book, never says his name. So, so how do we know this? Like, like, look at it with me. You'll see he never even says it in the preface. Let's read verses 1 through 4. We're going to read them several times today, but let's start now. Inasmuch as you've under... Inasmuch... I did the same thing. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so the first thing we need to answer right here is, who is this me of verse 3? It says it seemed good to me also to, to write this. So, so who is this guy? Who is this me? And so that's the first thing we're going to uh, try to tackle today. Who, who wrote the Gospel of Luke? And then we're going to flow in and talk a little bit about who he wrote it to, how he wrote it, and why he wrote it. So if you're going to take notes today and you want to frame it around that, that would be, be your framework. Who wrote it? Who did he write it to? How did he write it? And why did he write it? We want to answer those questions today and set us up for the weeks to come. All right, and so, number one, let's just jump right in. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Who is this me mentioned here in verse 3? Well, surprise, surprise, it's Luke. But, but how do we know that? Like, how, how can we deduce that? It never says that. Well, there's two, two ways that we know it was uh, Luke. The, the first is tradition, and the second is scriptural deduction. All right, so let me explain what I mean by those things. Well, let's go through tradition first. Tradition's not a bad thing. It's not, uh, it's not infallible, so tradition can be wrong. But tradition's not a bad thing, and the validity of whether or not something is true traditionally usually has to do with like how close the tradition began to the event. So, for example, Pastor John has been to Israel. And so, let's say in Israel, and he's traveling around, and he comes to some place, and some guy comes up to him, this is the traditional place where Jesus did such and such. And John asks him, well, well, how do you know that this is that place? And he says, well, it's tradition. And John says, well, how far back does that tradition go? And, 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 and the guy's like, well, it goes back to the 14th century. Well, John's going to very well know that's probably not a very, hello, very, probably not. It's like the, the Chicago glory just came on me. And so... So very much like John's going to kind of understand 14th century. This is probably just some joker who's trying to make a buck. He's trying to scam artists, get you know, wants me to take a selfie here and, and, and put it on Facebook. And other people come to this special site that's not a special site. And so since it's so late in becoming a tradition, it's probably not very likely. But with the Gospel of Luke, since this goes back, the tradition of back to the second century with guys like Justin Martyr and other early church fathers, like 125, not that far separated from where he wrote it, and has always remained that way and has always been unanimous, that's some pretty heavy evidence, not infallible, but evidence that it was Luke who did, in fact, write this. But I also said there's scriptural deduction, so let's get into that, right? says Luke wrote it, but we can reasonably like deduce that Luke wrote it. So, so, so here we go. Let's try to do this. Luke wrote this thing to this guy named Theophilus, right? We're going to talk about him in a minute. But flip over to the book of Acts real quick. Acts chapter 1. So page 591 in your pew Bible. And here's what it says. So Luke, he says, hey, I'm writing this to you, O uh, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Acts chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, so whoever wrote Acts wrote Luke. He said, and, and Luke's his first book. He wrote first book, Luke. Now I'm writing Acts and I'm writing it to you again, Theophilus. All right. And so whoever wrote Luke wrote Acts. And we also know whoever wrote Acts traveled with the Apostle Paul for a long time. So when you get into the book of Acts and you get to chapter 16, the language changes from the second person to the first person plural. So here's what I'm talking about. Chapters 1 through 15, he's sitting there and he's just telling the story. Hey, they did this and they did this and then they went there and then they went over there and then these guys did this. But when you get to chapter 16, the language changes and the author starts saying, we did this and then we went over there and then we went over there. So, so the author is present in the story of the book of Acts from like chapter 16 forward. So I... For example, chapter 16, verse 10, this is where it shifts. And when Paul had seen the vision, and talking about Macedonia, you don't have to turn there, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Look, he's always putting these historical markers about what's going on, how he writes. And he says, we remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gates and on and on and on. This keeps rolling out. And so, so far, we know that the author of Luke is the author of Acts. And he traveled with Paul. He was with him. So we got a little Sherlock Holmes going on up here trying to understand and dig into who exactly is this author. Let's keep going because somebody's like, well, that's great, Joe. Okay, so he traveled with Paul. But there's a ton of guys, ton of guys that travel with Paul. So how do you know who how how can you figure out that it's that it's Luke? Well, Paul gives the names of his traveling companions. And And in the book of Acts, he names all of them. But four. And so the ones that he names in Acts, like, did I say Paul? I'm talking about Luke. Uh, no, Paul names them all. But in the book of Acts, Luke, or the author, let's just say the author right now, names all of these traveling companions of Paul's except for four. So the ones that he names can't be the author. Because he's not going to say, you know, like Barnabas and, and me. Like if he's naming Barnabas, then Barnabas couldn't have written it. He, he's not going to say, um, um, Timothy and me, because if Timothy wrote it, then he's not going to name himself. So we can rule out, like, here's the list. You've got Barnabas, Mark, Silas, Aristarchus, Demas, Timothy, Titus, Epaphras, Segundus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, and Luke. That's a mouthful, but those are the traveling companions of Paul. We can eliminate all of those but four. And so that reduces us down to these four. Demas, Epaphras, Titus, and Luke. We know it's not going to be Demas because Demas deserts Paul. All right? Probably deserts the faith. And then Epaphras and Titus, they don't fit the narrative of traveling with Paul after Acts 17 in his missionary journeys. The only one at that point that fits 
Bill is our boy Luke. So that's how we scripturally deduce. Tradition says it's Luke. Scriptural deduction verifies that it's Luke. The author is Luke. But, but who is this guy? Who, who is Luke? He wrote Luke. He wrote Acts. He traveled with Paul. Who was he though? He was an apostle. He was not an apostle. He was not a pastor. He was not an evangelist. He was a doctor. Like Colossians 4.14 tells us he was a physician. Which, which I just love because sometimes we get this false notion that everybody in the Bible is some sort of pastor dude who's, who's doing something and that's who's mighty in the kingdom of heaven. But when you look at Scripture, it's usually people who are working their job. Whatever vocation God has given them, whatever vocation God has called them to, they're working their job and they're doing it unto the glory of God. They're worshiping and obeying God and leading others to do their same, even in their vocation. And that's what, uh, that's what Luke is. He's, he's, he's a physician. He's a doctor. And he's a Gentile. He's a Greek. Okay, he's not Jewish. He's not coming out of Judaism into uh, Christianity, which is the, the true continuation of it. But he's a Gentile. He's a Greek. And that plays a huge role in how he writes his gospel. He's the only guy who tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Why? Because he's a Gentile. Those things appeal to him. Theophilus is a Gentile. So he writes things to help the Gentile, Gentiles, on us, understand the gospel. So he's a doctor, he's a Gentile, and he's fearless. He's absolutely, I mean, ferocious man of God. Like, if you've got a background in the church, you'll remember Acts 27, the story of Paul. He's on the ship, he's traveling to Rome, and what happens? Shipwreck, right? And he goes into the sea. For a night and a day, he's in the sea. And then he finally washes up on shore. Yeah, Luke went in the drink too. Luke was with him. Luke was shipwrecked as well. It's all we stuff through there. All right? And then on top of, of that, when you get into uh, 2 Timothy, which is the last, petter, uh, last, petter, last letter that Paul ever wrote, he's writing it to Timothy right before he's beheaded. Like, um, persecution's breaking out. It's getting heavier and heavier and heavier. Nero's in power now. Nero's saying that the Christians set Rome on fire. So they're persecuting right before Nero has Paul beheaded. Paul writes this letter to his buddy Timothy, his like son in the ministry, basically. And he says this, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. So you know that a guy is legitimately fearless when the Apostle Paul is talking about how persecution's broken out and he's getting beaten and he's locked up and people are running and they're hiding. But Luke stays. Luke stays. Like even when things go violent and things go bad and people are dying for the sake of the gospel, Luke stays. He doesn't flee. Fearless. And he was brilliant as well. Like the first sentence here in the book of Luke. It's all in the Greek. It's, it's one sentence. These first four verses. 
are one giant sentence, and they're extremely sophisticated in, 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 in the Greek language. I mean, like, seriously, who, who, begins a, who begins a letter in as much, right? Who uses that kind of language? I did not write in as much in the beginning of my Valentine's card to Sarah this morning, in as much as we've been married 14 years. And no one writes that way. That's just the stuff that Russell writes with lawyer speak, in as much as blah, 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 blah. So it's a, it's a sophisticated wording here. And, and he's writing, what, what he's doing there is he's writing in the polished style of what is called literary, uh, classical um, literary Greek. Like most of the Bible and the rest of Luke's gospel is written in common Greek, Koine Greek, but this is written in classical literary Greek, like Homer with the Iliad and the Odyssey. What he's doing is he's putting his, his, his educational chops out there to listen up. I know what I'm talking about. I've got some background. I'm not some crazy guy that's doing something. I, here's who I am. And he's putting this out there and writing it in such a polished way. I mean, it's the, it's the most sophisticated sentence in all of the New Testament. And he's putting it out there saying, you need to listen up. Cultural elites, listen up. Um, claim, he's saying, this thing, I'm putting this out there like it's one of the classics. He's saying, listen to this. He's claiming a place for it among the classics, by the way, he writes this first sentence. And so that's who Luke was. He was a Gentile, he was a fearless and brilliant Gentile doctor. That's who he was. And this gospel that he writes, that we're just getting introduced in today, is actually the longest gospel of all four of them in terms of verses. Matter of fact, when you add Luke and Acts, it means that Luke wrote the majority of the New Testament. He wrote more of the New Testament in terms of verses than the Apostle Paul did. Luke wrote 2,157 verses. Paul writes 2,032. So between these two guys who traveled together, Acts 16 onward, good friends, you've got over two-thirds of the New Testament writing with Luke covering 60 years of history from the birth of Jesus to the gospel reaching Rome, which was the apex of the then known world. And so number one, who wrote it? Luke did. Number two, who did Luke write it to? Look at verse one again. I'll read it all again. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so who did Luke write it to? He wrote it to this guy named Theophilus. All right, and Theophilus, that name, Theos, God, phileo, love, just means loved by God. So it's a pretty good name. Like my name, Joseph, that means um, God will increase. That's a pretty good name. Sometimes you see some really awful names in the Bible as well. Right? Naomi had two sons. Their names translated were death and sickness. So it's like, hey, meet my son death and Zika virus. That's a terrible name. But Theophilus, that's a, that's a pretty good name. Pretty good name. He, he's Theo, though. I like to call him Theo, like Dr. Huxtable's kid. So this, we got Theo right here. But notice the two words that come before Theophilus. Most excellent. 
most excellent. So now we're starting to get a little bit of an understanding of who he is. Because the only other place you see that kind of language in the New Testament is in Acts when Luke is writing about Felix or Festus, governors, uh, Roman governors. And so we're beginning to see here, most excellent Theophilus, that more than likely this is a high-ranking Roman official, Gentile guy, high-ranking Roman official who maybe is a new convert or is just, you know, he's a skeptic who's beginning to think through some of this, but he's got some sort of relationship with, with Luke. Like maybe Luke is his physician. Maybe Luke has treated him for something and he's asked Luke some questions and Luke's dialogued with him. They've talked about the gospel and they've talked about Jesus and Luke says, you know what, I'm going to write it all down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an orderly account so that this guy can have certainty of what I'm talking about. And that brings us to number three, which is how, how did he write it? How did he write it? Look at verse one again. Let's read it again. I want you to see this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he's saying, listen, it's been done before. People have already written this. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an early account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So he's trying to help him with his problem with doubt. His skepticism, his questions, his doubting. He wants to, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And so right out of the gate, he's just laying this out there. I'm not the first one that's written this. And I've gone and I've gotten eyewitnesses and I've chatted. Like he's laying out his sources. Here's, here are who my sources are. I've talked to eyewitnesses. I've read earlier compiled um, gospels. Like the, the book of Mark had already been written. In fact, 60% of Mark is reproduced verbatim in Luke. So Mark is one of his sources. So I've read other accounts, I've interviewed eyewitnesses, I've traveled with Paul, I have all of this background, I've researched it, and it's historical, and it's organized, and it's orderly. And so some, I read this week, somebody, uh, I can't remember who it was, said that, described it this way, said, if, if Matthew and Mark were storytellers, and if John was a philosopher, then Luke was an investigative reporter. Like that's what he did. That's how he wrote it. He investigated it. He talked to people. And so he said, there's other books out there, right? And there's eyewitnesses out there, and I've talked to them. I mean, this thing's written around 62 A.D. Jesus died 33 A.D., give or take some years. So it's not a whole lot of time removed. There's still eyewitnesses that can corroborate or dispute the validity of what he's writing here. And so he's writing all of this and just saying, listen, Theophilus, this is how I've done it. This is what I, I've interviewed people. I've talked to people. I've, I've looked at Mark's writing. I've looked at this. I've looked at that. And on top of all this, I'm not just coming into this. I've been following this closely for some time past, like for over a decade. I've been following this. And so here's one of the things that personally I love about Luke. Luke is not some sort of, like he's not saying to Theophilus, just turn your brain off 
and just blind faith believe everything. Luke's saying, no, 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 no. I've researched it. I've gone after it. I've looked into it. And so I love this about Luke because personally, me by nature, I'm skeptical. Like, probably annoyingly so to Sarah. Whenever something comes up, I'm like, no, 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 no. Until it's proven. And so Luke appeals to me in this way. He's coming and saying, I've researched this, I've read, I've interviewed, I've talked to others to see if all this is true, to, to see if it adds up. And, and so listen, we have to have faith, right? We're not saved by facts, we're saved by faith in Christ. What Christ has done for us, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's where our salvation comes from. But our faith has to have historical legs to stand on or it's false. And that's what Luke is trying to to prove here. I mean, that's, even, that's the whole deal with Easter. That's what makes Easter such a big deal. Like, did Jesus rise again or not? Because if he did, like, forget everything else and just let's talk resurrection. If Jesus was dead and became undead of his power, then that means what he said is true. And if he's didn't rise again, then we're wasting our time in here. Like it, it's all on that. And so faith, yes and amen, you've got to choose to trust Jesus. You've got to place your faith in Christ by faith. But if it didn't really historically happen, then it's it's a fraud. And so all, like we ask a gazillion questions about the Bible, but the brass tacks is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Did it happen? And it's that that Luke is writing to us to say it did. And so he draws on the work of others like Mark, and he puts this all together. He doesn't just want to, like, like Mark's just kind of facts. But Luke wants to have names and dates and faces and people he can go talk to and point people to and say, I talked to this guy and this is what he told me. And this person, this is what's happened in their life, like investigative reporting. And that's probably why the book of Luke zeroes in on individual stories more than any other gospel. It's kind of like at the Olympics, right? When you, and this is me getting angry, so it may be a bad illustration. But when I watch the Olympics because I'm a track guy, and I enjoy that, I like it when they show track and field events. Not tell me the life story of so-and-so and what they did. No, show me the, show me the race, right? But, but Luke, like NBC, and he wants to zero in and give you the, 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 the story of the person. And so he does that repeatedly, which kind of just shows like the interviews and the people he's talked to. So it's only in Luke that we get the story of the birth of John the Baptist and the infancy of Jesus. No other gospel tells us that. Why? Probably because he interviewed their moms. It's only in the book of Luke that we have the songs of Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and the, the angel chorus. It's only in Luke that we have the stories of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son and the Pharisee and the publican. It's only in Luke where we find out what Jesus preached to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. 
And then one thing that's in particular about Luke is he rejects the first century's neglect of women. And he zeroes in and talks about women more so than any other gospel uh, narrative. From Mary to Elizabeth to Anna to Martha and her sister Mary. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, the widow of Nain, the widow who gave all the daughters of Jerusalem and all the women in various uh, parables of Jesus. And so Luke talked to people. He researched this. He asked questions. He took his doctor's gift of observation took his intellectual capacities and wrote a historically accurate account of Christ's life. Like even beyond all these personal stories, he's always plugging in historical context. Like we, we saw in Acts, he's talking about Roman cities and colonies and this sort of stuff. Luke 2, 2, he references Quirinius, the governor of Syria, a historically verifiable guy. Talks about Felix and Festus and all these guys he's peppering in Historical things, and you can look it up. It was never even questioned until the 19th century, but even since then, the beginning of the 19th century, the more we learn about the ancient world, the more we see how careful Luke was with his facts. One historian writes this. Wherever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, The judgment has been unanimous. He's one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. In the words of the famous archaeologist William Ramsey, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He's possessed of the true historic sense. He sees the important and critical events and shows their nature at greater length while he touches lightly or omits entirely much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. And so the things of Jesus that he accomplished are, well, are, are, are as well established as any other ancient history that we possess. In fact, it's far more so. So as I said earlier, we still have to accept that what the gospel says is true. Like, by faith. No one can be argued into the kingdom of heaven. It must be John 3 in them by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we've got to put our own personal hope and trust in Christ and in Christ alone to be what makes us right with God because we're not right with God left to ourselves. We're separated from God by our rebellion and by our sin. And there's a giant chasm and we cannot bridge that by good deeds. We cannot bridge that by good thoughts. We cannot bridge that by anything. It has to be bridged by God coming to us in the person of Jesus, living a perfect life that we haven't lived, dying a death that we deserve and rising again in victory over sin and death, proven by the fact that he rose again and he has power to forgive. And so we've got to repent of sin. We've got to believe this good news so that we can be forgiven, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus did. And we receive that by faith, not by fact. But the facts undergird the faith that we have. We have reasonable... um, We have reason to believe based on reliable historical facts. Which is why Luke wrote it. And so that's number four. We'll hop into number four. He wrote it 
in the first place he wrote it, is so that we might have certainty concerning the things of Christ, right? He wrote it to Theophilus, um, having followed all things closely for some time past, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So this is why he wrote it to Theophilus. And like I said earlier, Theophilus is a historical dude, but I want you to hear this. As you're reading this, you are Theophilus. I am Theophilus. Like as you're, you are loved of God, Theophilus. You are loved of God. And, and, and Luke did the writing here, but God, by the Holy Spirit, guided that so that what he wrote was, the, even after he researched and all this, what he wrote is the very word of God through the personality of Luke. And he had it written down so that we might have certainty that Christ is who he says he is, and did what he said he did. So that we might swat the mosquito of doubt that's always buzzing around. But again, I want you to so jump back into the Roman culture for just a minute and think about how revolutionary this is that Luke is writing this to a high-ranking Roman official. Like, think about the um, pluralism of like we think, we think today is pluralistic, but think about the Roman Empire in the first century. The pluralism there, the different religions and the melting pot and the mixing of all of that. And so for Luke to write this to a Roman official, this classic work of history that he's claiming that it is, and in it to say everybody else is wrong, this is right. This is the only way. There's one way. There's only one way to be made right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Everything else is wrong. This is a revolutionary truth for a Roman official to believe. That there's just one way. But that's the truth that Luke is screaming to Theophilus. There's only one way way. And it's the same truth that he's screaming to all of us. There's one way. And there's one way only. And that way is through Christ. And so if, if, if you're in here and you're doubting, you're skeptical, uh, maybe, and maybe you're a believer and you just have questions and you're wondering about things, this series is a good place for you. This is a good place to be. And we'll walk with you through skeptic, through skepticism, walk through with you through doubt, through wondering, but keep digging. Okay, keep exploring with us. Let's keep walking through this together. But all of us, Christians and non-Christians, let's be intellectually honest as we do so. So here's what I mean by that. This book is claiming absolute truth. It is claiming absolute truth. And that idea of absolute truth is hard for some folks. Right? It's hard for some folks say, to, 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 you know, to grasp, but, 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 or not just grasp, but to accept. But if you, if you come and then you say, there are there is no such thing as absolute truth. 
That's not an intellectually honest statement. Because you're using an absolute to claim that there's no such thing as absolutes. Right? There's no such thing as absolute truth. You're making an absolute statement that there's no absolute statement. So it fought like it crashes on its head. That's not an intellectually honest statement. It's smoke and mirrors. So I want us to be honest. Intellectually honest. I want, well, all religions, they all teach the same thing. And ultimately, they all get us to heaven. It's just one, one way is this way, and one way is this way, and one way is this way. And this, they ultimately teach the same thing. How do you know? Right? I mean, like when we do that, that, that's not an intellectually uh, honest statement again, because what winds up happening is like you and I are doing the same thing. We're both claiming an understanding of ultimate reality, but you're calling me arrogant for saying that there's one and only way, but you're enlightened for saying, no, there's lots of ways, and everybody else who says that there's one way is wrong, but I know what ultimate reality is. Everybody else is wrong, but I understand. Like if you're taking John's class, The Reason of God, you're going to be dealing with some of this. I mean, I, I read, one guy wrote it like this this week. He said, I'm arrogant and I'm intolerant because I say I know ultimate reality. And because I don't really know ultimate reality, you know ultimate reality. I'm arrogant for claiming I know ultimate reality because you really know ultimate reality. Right? It's a, doing the same thing just from different points of view. So let's be intellectually honest and say, like, we're on the same wave here from different points of view. Don't call me arrogant and say you're enlightened when we're doing the same thing. But then on the flip side, Christians, don't you be arrogant with it either. Like, that's what we do sometimes as believers. We get all arrogant and like, well, if you can't believe it, then you're just going to go burn in hell. Blah, blah, blah. Well, that helps. Is it true? Yeah. But wisdom, humility, and honesty. That's how we want to walk in this. We want to, we want to explore the claims of Christ in the book of Luke for weeks to come with humility and honesty. And kindness. So we might see the certainty of our faith. Because that's what Luke is trying to write. And that's probably the most important word in here. Is that word certainty. In the Greek it's asphalion. Which means absolutely certain. Infallibly certain. It's a claim of absolute truth. So that you might know with absolute truth that Christ is who he says he is. That's the claim that Luke is claiming here. That's the purpose Luke wrote the book for, so that we might know that. It's back to Han Solo in Star Force Awakens. Luke is saying the Theophilus in all of us is true. Always.
thank you for your word. We thank you for that, that you have given it to us in grace. Lord, we could not know you if you had not revealed this to us. Thank you that you did. And we can know you. And Father, for the believer, I pray that in these weeks to come, we will be strengthened in our faith. Or Christ-like. We would put into practice a to be positionally in Christ. For the non-believer, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself in Christ. And they would find forgiveness of sin, joy beyond circumstantial preferences, peace in the midst of turmoil, Eternal life promised salvation from their sin. Adoption by you, Father, into your family. Where we shift from being children of wrath to children of God, loved and delighted in and sung over, as Zephaniah tells us. And for all of us, as we come now to be reminded of what you did for us through your sacrifice, we pray that you would stir our hearts and our affections for you, for in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.